zooming along, as they say. Woohoo! There's the volume change, which means we can chat a little over the music. <laughs> We're going pro here, gang. This is like getting inch, inch, incrementally more professional all the time. How is everybody doing? How's the weather in your world, gang, in the chat? Welcome to everybody who's joining this, us this week. Um, we have a, an awesome and uh, an amazing special guest with us this week. We're really, uh, we're really chuffed, as the English might say. Would the Scottish say, say that differently? Anyway, we'll get Donald to fill us in. Donald Clark is with us here uh, today, folks. Um, Donald, there may actually be some people in our world who haven't uh, met you or heard of you or, or been introduced sure. to you before. So, so give everybody your, your 30 second bio, uh, a bit of an introduction to yourself. Tell folks who you are, where you've been, what you've been doing. Sure thing. Okay. My, uh, my name is Donald Clark. I'm actually here in Brighton on the south coast of England. That's as far away from Scotland as you can get without getting wet. Uh, so what I've, I, well, I spent, you know, my first online learning program was 1983. So I spent my whole of my adult life in learning and technology, really. Uh, built companies, I floated a company in the stock market and sold it and all that sort of thing. Uh, I'm now cut to the quick now. Last four or five years, all to do with artificial intelligence. I've invested in AI and learning companies. I've, I, I run a CEO, an AI learning company called Wildfire. I've written a book called Artificial Intelligence for Learning. There'll be a discount available for you later. <laughs> if you want. Uh, I, I have some sort of academic angle. You know, I blog a lot. I, I'm a speaker and uh, I'm a professor in an English university. So, you know, you know, when you get to my time of life, you lose your hair and you gather lots of these little uh, little portfolio jobs so that's where i am <laughs> excellent yeah, uh, I, 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 I would say from... oh sorry go ahead i was just gonna say jack of all trades but the other half of that phrase probably doesn't apply to you because in your case i, I do think you have a level of mastery in, in most of the things you get involved in thank you yeah well you know it's i i've spent my life doing one thing really and uh you know, when, when young people, you know, if they ever ask me for advice, I always say that, get good at something. doesn't matter what it is, you know, get good at something, stick with it. <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. I, I vaguely remember the very first time that I, I think it was probably the first time that I heard your name or saw you was in the early days of Twitter. And I, or, and I remember you saying something to the effect of I'm, I'm about to retire, which means I can finally speak my mind. <laughs> Well, that's true, actually. There's a great deal to be said for not having to work in an organization, you know, uh, because it, you always have that little niggling thing on your shoulder saying, you, you shouldn't say that. But I, I used to say, you know, being free from the tyranny of employment, that's a good description. I retired when I was quite young, when I was 49. It allows you to say what the hell you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is beautiful, you know, and it, it kind of makes you wish that we could just... You know, we wish you didn't have that tyranny of employment. I mean, not that we yeah. shouldn't have jobs or anything, but you should just still be able to yeah. speak your mind and say what you want. But anyways, we don't need to go there. We're talking artificial intelligence. <laughs> yeah. Um, what, what first, you know, I guess tickled your fancy about AI and what, or what got, got you into that kind of space? Well, strangely enough, it goes back a long way, even though it's a sort of, you know, hip thing now. So the, the zeitgeist topic. And many, many moons ago, when I was just 19, I, I was at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. I studied there for a bit. And that was, the, that was in 1956, the year of my birth. That was the birth of modern AI. And I was involved in, 
you know, there was a big mainframe on the campus there. And I got, I got first interested in this then. And then in the 90s, I did some what was called expert systems work that was to do with this. So real, you know, in the learning space using technology. And so I always had an eye on it. But then suddenly internet comes along. But more importantly, computer technology and some advances in the AI or neural networks and so on come a lot along about six, seven years ago. And I immediately said, that's it. This is going to change the world. And boy, it, it has. Mm -hmm. And so all my energies went into, you know, investment in writing and building a company in this space. You know, that if it didn't have those two letters, I was out. And uh, I think it's the technology of the age. You know, the, the top companies by market cap globally are all AI companies. You know, whether it's Bad Eye, Tencent, Alibaba in China, Facebook, Twitter, Google, uh, Microsoft in the US. You know, these are all fundamentally AI companies. AI, we live in the world of AI. You know, if most learning is, you know, it's not past tense. Most learners, so what do you do when you're stuck and you want to find something out or want to know how to do something? You just hit Google, you go to YouTube, and that's nothing but AI. Uh, all your social media, mediated by AI. Everything is mediated by AI. Mm -hmm. uh, but as I often say, apart from learning, and that's the weird thing, and that's because we're normally out of phase with the rest of the world, technically. <laughs> but, but, uh, but it's going to happen, and it is happening. Um, yeah, we think of many of those things, the social medias, et cetera, we think of those as the, the, the services that we use them for. But it's the AI that's, you know, that's, offering recommendations, connecting us with other things that, uh, right. that you know, scanning or looking for similarity, similarities and patterns, et cetera, um, to be able to build the, hmm, I don't know, the surrounding of it, of it and, the, and our movement through it in a lot of cases, for sure. That's correct. And I think, you know, it's the hidden hand behind the internet. It filters mm. everything. It mediates everything, almost everything you do online. But it's moved into another phase in learning now. And that is that it's being an active agent in terms of the creation of content and assessment, changing interfaces. You know, I'm sitting in a room with my A-L-E-X-A -E in the corner. I won't say a room or <laughs> name because she'll spring into action. But that's AI, text-to-speech, speech-to-text. It's fundamentally changing what we learn and how we learn. And, uh, you know, that's already happened and will just continue to happen. Uh, we, we are moving, uh, we're in transition here between a rather flat HTML world and the sort of multimedia world where most e-learning is, you know, yeah. video, text, graphics, you know, you name it, mm -hmm. uh, with multiple choice questions. Uh, and then there's this other world where you have really smart technology. If we're going to make people smarter, then we have to use smarter tech. You know, we've had that flat world. We're moving into a more sophisticated AI-mediated world, which will allow us to teach and learn with far greater efficacy, much cheaper, much faster. And that's already happening. Mm -hmm. What's the... Um, uh, where would you see us, like, along like Gartner's hype cycle curve, right? I guess everybody, yeah. everyone's probably familiar with that. You know, are, are you know, where would you see us well, AI on that? AI in learning, I should say, specifically. I don't really like the Gartner thing, to be honest. <laughs> you know, well, mainly I think people forget that they, they got it wrong with Google. You know, Google, the biggest AI presence on the planet. Google just went up all the way. There was no curve with search. <laughs> there was you no know? trough of disillusion. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's complete a lot of that, a lot of bullshit trough. But you know, actually, people are just making it fit the curve now, as opposed to it being a real empirical phenomenon. Most things that come along in the web, like texting, you know, mobile, just went up and up and up in a linear fashion. There was no yeah. sort of trough. 
so, and I think that's true, certainly true with AI. Uh, well, apart from the fact that there is always with technology, I wrote a piece about this recently, there is always a period of denial to a degree, and that especially in education and learning, because confirmation, you know, it's, it's, it's a profession that was founded in performance in the classroom, in the training room. And therefore, people come from that with a confirmation bias against technology, I think, and a negativity bias. So AI, there are more people doing you know, papers on AI and ethics than in actual AI now, you know? Uh, you know <laughs> and it's easy to write an essay on AI and ethics. It's quite difficult doing it. I suspect that's why this has happened. But nevertheless, its impact has been global and phenomenal, you know? So, uh, you know, there's no, there's no reversal here. So where does it, where does it fit in our in our ecosystem? I'm sure a lot of folks are here, uh, you know, wanting us to talk uh, a little bit about tactics. I mean, I don't want to I don't want us yeah. to go too, you know, down a rabbit hole of details and whatnot. But like in general, when people are listening to us chat about this today and they're thinking to themselves, I wonder how AI, you know, how I can use it or how does it fit into the work that I do or my career? Like, what, you know, can you try to make it tangible for people a little bit for us? Sure, Chris. Well, let's let's sort of send an arrow straight at L&D here because we are in the market at the moment in a period of transition between this flat LMS content type world based on SCORM, 20-year-old standard, which was terrible. It's, it's like constricting your throat, not being able to swallow anything, you know? It's held us down, if anything. And I was there when it started, and it was, yeah, I know the people who started it, and they were completely misguided. But now we've come out of that, and we're moving away from the LMS towards the what's called LXPs, or Learning Experience Platforms, or Learning Experience Design. And that's where AI will have its immediate impact, because, you know, how do people actually learn in the workplace? Well, you know, Bob Mosher and Alfred Remitz and those people are right. They have those moments of need, you know, something changes uh, uh, or, 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 or you need to take a deep dive into something. You're interviewing someone. You need it now. Those moments of need mean you have to pull stuff. How do you pull stuff in the workplace? You use SERP. use Google. That's what 99 100 people do, they stop and they search for something. But Google isn't enough in the learning environment because you need searchability within documents and, and within the content you've got as well, that deep search. So you have to provide that, that's all AI driven. So there's a pooling effect that you need to provide in the workflow. But then that's never enough because there are also moment, other type moment, moment, not moments of need, but things you have to push to people. And there are several species of a push type stuff. First of all, people have responsibilities, moral compliance and so on. And we know we don't like it, but we have to, we have to do yeah. that stuff. Sometimes it's legal. So you have to push that stuff to people. And then there's the unseen stuff. People don't know what they don't know. So, you know, it's pointless just letting people pull stuff all the time because you don't know what you don't know. So sometimes there's that sort of push stuff. There's the procrastination. People don't like learning much, you know. <laughs> you know, that's the truth of the matter. We procrastinate. We all wrote our essays the night before they were due to go in, blah, blah, blah. And then there's the practice, retrieval practice, space practice. That's got to be push, pushed to people as well. And then lastly, application of knowledge and so on. You have to sort of, you know, guide people's hands towards transfer, uh, and practice. So all of those things you can push. So all the behavioral science comes in here. So how do you push those nudges to people? That's all AI driven as well. Uh, so you have that 
you know, in these learning experience platforms, which I think will absolutely dominate the, the learning landscape going off in the future, in the workspace learning arena, you're pushing and pulling. And then you have some really interesting things on top of that. So AI can interpret all the social text, for example. Uh, there's some really interesting stuff I've been involved in where you're looking at the text that people are using in social arenas and you're seeing if they're going off topic or whether they're really applying the knowledge. That's getting interesting. And then there's the AI for creation of content, which I've been involved in for the last four or five years. So, you know, building all that online content, expensive, slow, stressful, dealing with SMEs. And we're now getting to the stage where AI is actually, you know, a press of a button type uh, creation, certainly question creation, but also the interpretation of open-ended answers. So, you know, the multiple choice question, are we really going to still be sticking with MCQs in another 10 years, which people can barely write anyway, and the right answer is on the screen? Or, do you know, does, any, does anybody in the real world in the workplace ever ask you a question that goes at A, B, C, or D? <laughs> Never in the history of work. But you all ask of the question, above. <laughs> all of the above. Even worse, yeah, or none of the above. <laughs> uh, if I even get it wrong, the research shows there should only be three options and we write a four. But, but the truth is that open-ended questioning is you're perfectly possible now and i've been working hard on that and it works beautifully you know ask me a question and i type in a sentence or I say a sentence and it interprets semantically interprets my answer that's miles away from multiple choice questions and multi and of course far superior cognitively i'm having to make the effort pull it out from the back of my brain i know it or don't know it and then it can give me feedback depending on whether i got it right or I may have presented a misconception. So there are also, you know, feedback should be called feed forward, you know, in learning. It's, yeah. it's all about picking up on cognitive mistakes, helping and scaffolding the learner to move forward. So semantic analysis, question generation, content generation, novel forms of assessment, all of this stuff's coming into play. And of course, it's changing the very interface. We're now speaking to computers, you know, whether it's Google Assistant, Siri or whatever. This is all AI. And this is the new frontier, but it's not a frontier. It's been with us for a decade. You know, the, the, you know, we've had Google for 20 years. You all use AI nearly every day of your life and learning. So let's uh, just take it to the next level and get rid of the stuff that's held us back. All that LMS, SCORM, multiple choice, flat stuff. Um, yeah, as you're talking about semantically, you know, uh, looking at responses, et cetera, I mean, SCORM has a an open question type that can be, you know, submitted, but of course there's no, there's no way to, you know, uh, create an answer that can be marked. So all it can do is, is push it over into the LMS where a human can come along later and, uh, and read it and evaluate it, et cetera. Um, but being able to do that, being able to do that uh, in the moment, because of, you know, if it takes an instructor a week to get to that and then get feedback, well, that's both lost time in learning. It's lost opportunity for, for moving things to, long-term memory, that feedback loop just gets, you know, stretched out for sure. Um, so being That's able correct. to do that kind of stuff much more, um, you know, much more quickly and much more effectively using AI is, that's kind of goosebumpy, really, to think about that. Well, it is, but it, it's the norm on the web for everybody else and mm -hmm. every other area of human endeavor. And of course, the hidden, the hidden factor here is data. So SCORM doesn't give you any data. It's not big data, it's no data. <laughs> you call it that. But of course, with XAPI and learning record stores, we're starting to use data. And I think people have, L&D's already, sort of, I think, 
maybe not using it as well as we should be. We tend to be in love with dashboards, you know, that sort of mm. dashboard dazzle, but just presenting donuts to people on screens doesn't do anything. <laughs> and of course, you know, when I would, you know, how often do you see a dashboard when you're normally using the web? Never, no. never. Because data can be used. So we, I've been working with some data modeling here, which I write about in the book, which is that your descriptive data is one thing in learning, but that just tells you what people have done. The next level is analytic data, doing some deep analysis, looking for insights. But even that is just dashboard stuff. And, you know, L&D people, I described, they're like people with dashboards without a car. You know, what's the point of the dashboard if you're not actually driving <laughs> or making decisions? And I would much prefer that we moved into prescription and prediction. So you can predict the future, uh, you know, what a learner needs next in adaptive learning systems, like your sat-nav in the car. Uh, you know, if you go off course, it gets you back on piece, back on course again. That's what AI will do for you. But more importantly, I think this is about one word, and that's automation. So I would much rather we look at AI as a, a, an agent for automating processes. And uh, I think that really, really does matter in the LXP world. So where you're using XAPI to harvest data, individual data about you, Chris, you, Brent, but also the aggregated data from everybody who's done that course and other courses and so on. And you use that to feed and propel people forward. And that's where it really comes in useful. That's how Google, Facebook, and everybody else uses AI. They don't give you dashboards. They use all that data to help you get a better thing on your screen, as does Netflix, you know? Netflix doesn't give me a whole load of Bollywood movies every night on my tiled screen, but I'm sure it does for the, the, the many Indian people on that service. That personalized, you know, the thing I get on Amazon, I want that, you know, I want that. I, you know, I, I, I grew up with television. I had to watch what somebody else <laughs> told me I was going to watch every night, four hours a night for nearly 30 years. <laughs> Do we want to, that's, and that's, that's where learning is with LMSs in, at the moment, really. Or are we going to move into the world of, uh, you know, no, give me what I actually need, mm -hmm. which is sensitive to my situation in that context at that time. And AI is the only mechanism for doing this. I think around the design of learning as well, I was involved in a really interesting project for the last year around using really high-end maths to determine an optimal blend. People talk about blended learning and it's like Velcro learning. Yeah, we'll have a bit of the classroom, we'll have a bit offline, <laughs> still a bit you know, back of an envelope, but we'll have definitely the stuff we did before, you know, but let's add a couple of new things. That's it's so irrational. Actually, there are about, you know, we looked at about 150 different possible methods of delivering learning. And then you input a whole lot of data about the learners, types of learners, how distributed they are, are they at home, are they at work, blah, blah. Also the type of learning, now almost a sort of Bloom's approach to that, although a much more recent taxonomy. And then also the resources you've got. And then once no human brain can hold all these variables in their mind at one time. So you have to use quite clever uh, logistics type uh, linear uh, programming to get the right output, which is an optimal blend. What is the right thing for that type of learning, those learners with these resources? Human beings need to get out of the idea that they can do things on their own. You know, this brain that we have, is, it's got about 50 cognitive biases. We're all sexist, we're all racist. We can't download, upload, you know, we die. We get easily <laughs> distracted. We sleep eight hours a night. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing particularly special about that. And if things can be automated, then let's automate them with reason and good sense. 
And uh, uh, I think that's what AI offers here. What about <laughs> the, uh, so the, the, the downside, let's kind of go there for a few minutes. So that there's always the, the, the creepiness factor and, you know, um, it, it, it struck me just yesterday morning, actually, I'm, I'm in the bathroom getting ready for my day with my wife and I'm, I'm mentioning, you know, I'd like to lose a couple pounds and like literally 30 seconds later, I get a text message not just a Facebook ad or anything like that, but an actual text message comes in and, and is, is pitching me a, a, a weight loss pill. Take this magic pill and lose weight. I never have gotten anything like that. I've never done searches on it. I don't even really need to lose weight. I was just kind of mentioning it offhand that with the COVID thing, I've kind of put on a few pounds and I'd like to lose a few pounds, you know, no big deal. And then I get that and I'm like, this is too coincidental. Is it, is my phone listening to me? Like what the heck? Oh yeah. No, I wholly agree that when you get cold called on the back of this stuff or, you know, I, I barely use LinkedIn. I'm tired of LinkedIn employees sending me messages about how they're going to change my business and my life. I say, listen, you, you know, that, you know, it, it, Guy Wallace described as like fish in a barrel for LinkedIn. What do, they, what do they think they're doing? They run a network. What are they going to teach me about anything? Yeah. So I, I think, uh, I, I think I'm wary of that stuff, but then again, you know, what, you know that that that's people. That's marketing people overstepping the mark, uh, and I think you're always going to. You know, technology always has its pluses and downsides. You know, we drive. Well, I don't drive a car, believe it or not. This shocks Americans, but I've never driven a car in my life. But one and a half million people per year die horrible deaths in cars. But we all drive cars, and but AI is particularly susceptible to this attack on ethics. You know, that it's you know just a bunch of white guys in a back room programming stuff that that's sexist and so on but, which is hardly true you know I, i've worked in technology believe me in ai it's mostly chinese and asian kids and indian kids you know it's the most multicultural technical teams you might imagine i was in silicon valley at stanford last year there was barely a white person in any of the teams i was i was working with so uh, I, I, and i think on bias you know i have my caneman book behind me he got a nobel prize for finding out that we all have a hundred or so biases in our brain many of them innate and as he says in the penultimate page they're uneducable which is why unconscious bias is a heap of crap it doesn't work uh, but you know we spend loads of money on flat media trying to convince people that we we do have such diagnostic skills so i think i think we have to calm down with ai and look at you know understand that it has some downsides uh, for example the social engineering in china is you know horrific you know the idea that you have a social score and you'll be judged on that by the government is ridiculous in western minds really and 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 horrific but we have uh, the two big bodies the ec the european commission and i triple who have some pretty good guidelines around this and it's a bit like uh, in pharmaceuticals you know we'll come up with a sort of test regime to make sure that it does what it says on the tin and it will get, we'll, we'll be very careful with deep fake stuff and so on. But technology is always like this. We have to just, you know, it's a, it's a design and engineering problem. It's not a massive ethical issue as some would, some would have us believe. Because the technology is not as good as you think it is and certainly not as bad as you fear. How do we deal with the employees, though, around it? I, I think, like, getting to the human side of this, right? Like, mm -hmm. for somebody like me or, um, like... 
Uh, I'm trying to think of another. So another good example is a, a guy I know I used to work with started a, a company for sales professionals. And he figured out, he wrote code that could be plugins to a bunch of different email systems. And what his platform could do was to track sales folks on their email exchanges with customers. And it could read all those emails and it could to what you're saying, semantically digest all of those conversations and then turn out a score or, or turn out recommendations and, and push recommendations to that salesperson and say, hey, maybe, you know, you, you might want to ask them this or you might want to talk to your this client about this or you might, um, you know, next time. You know, it, it looks like your numbers are down and it looks like, you know, Dave, your colleague over here, his numbers are way up. He's doing these things that you aren't doing. Maybe you should try doing those things. Right. And it did all that kind of stuff. He could not. He, he, he sold it to a couple big companies with sales teams and but it barely got out of beta before it just tanked because salespeople said, no, you buy that shit and put it on my e email. I'm out. I'm going somewhere else. I'm not going to have some magic algorithm in the background telling me how to do my job. Yeah, well, that's why those those salespeople will be out of a job one day, literally. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, let, let's be honest. Let, let's take another example, okay? So, you know, I've been involved in medical education all my life, and there's been some big breakthroughs on algorithms spotting tumors against biopsy data so that, so that we make sure that the AI is checked against real data, those people really did have cancer. Are we saying, no, 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 I'm a doctor, you know, and even although many more patients will die, but I want to keep it. I want to keep my old process anyway. Or you as an oncology patient with cancer, would you rather walk in and have a machine spot the tumor which the doctor cannot spot or the cancer cells through, you know, there are people looking down microscopes with limited peripheral vision making mistakes on that every single day. So I think there are plenty areas of human endeavor where we have to do what your sales process did, and that's improve the process, especially when it's uh, AI for good. Now, is it AI for good in sales? Well, if you're running that company and you increase sales, then perhaps it is for good. What's different from a sales director who just goes out and observes or mentors and coaches these salespeople? They're full of biases, but they find that that's fine. You know, As long as it's a human being sitting on your shoulder surveilling you, that's okay. But if it's a machine, it's not. But what if the machine is actually getting rid of biases? What if it's not necessarily reducing the perception of black salespeople, for example? What if it's actually doing a good job and making it fairer for people in work? Because the one thing about human bias is it's very difficult to shift. You can with AI. That's where the big misconception around bias arises, I think. Uh, you know, we're talking about mathematical bias, not human bias. There can be human bias mm -hmm. in the data, but we can use mathematics, reduce the whole science of AI is the science of statistics. And the science of statistics is all about the reduction of bias. Mm -hmm. We got a lot of questions in the question box, Chris. You yeah, sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there's a kind of a theme on a couple of uh, places. Well, David was asking about XAPI, but I think you, you you started referencing that just after he posted that. But how how XAPI does tie in as one of the main ways to sort of collect the data around these sorts of projects. There are a few questions, and I'm going to sort of summarize them as a as kind of a similar theme about you know getting started. How do we start doing something with this in our workplaces? And one of the contexts I think I saw in the chat too is the notion of, look, we've already got a huge budget that's going towards an LMS. 
um, you know, where do we, you know, where do you start with thinking about AI and, and how do we even make the business case, uh, you know, in that regard as well? So two halves of the question, you, you know, how, where, what, what can we do to get started using it and uh, how do we make it uh, understandable to the people who hold the, the purse strings? No, that's a good question because the, the LMS paradigm is the dominant paradigm mm -hmm. and people have invested budgets and so on. Uh, and so, of course, some of the bigger companies are already making the shift. So you keep your LMS and because the SCORM data, you can sort of translate, you can use all sorts of, sort of coding tricks in a sense to take mm -hmm. that data and, and turn it into the same type of data as your XAPI data, store it in a separate record store or whatever, and then do what you want with it. So there are ways of moving from uh, keeping your LMS. You know, I'm not, I'm not such a big fan of saying, let's get rid of the LMS. If you're running a big, big company, you still have to manage store data and manage your learners. Mm -hmm. okay? But the LXP functionality certainly has to be either added to the LMS or you buy it as a separate thing and translate between the two. Because ultimately, what's happening is effectively our LMS vendors are turning, trying to turn themselves into LXP people, but not really because it's old tech, so they're mostly pretending. <laughs> you know, they're putting it's certain lipstick on a pig type stuff, really. Yeah, for a lot, a lot. yeah, yeah that's dash right. Let's have a few donuts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, uh, and the, the LXP people, similarly, the, you know, they're reverse engineering because they suddenly realize actually, you know, people like Degreed and so on. They, they, there's a good God, we don't have the LMS functionality. Let's, and so they're moving backwards to grab some of that. So there will be a melding. Unfortunately, they, they came from separate origins, yeah. uh, but there will be a meeting of minds on this. And ultimately, we'll have single systems. But I, I don't worry too much about that because I think the view that everyone should have around technology and learning is that of a sort of ecosystem of technology anyway, you know, which we all have. And realistically, you know, your learners, yeah, go back to the, the, the big, what do learners actually need? Let's focus on they need something they can get to within two clicks and seven seconds. I don't know any LMS that does that, not one, <laughs> yeah. uh, but I know LXPs that do that. Now, that's 99% of the requests from workplace learners, anyway. So, why aren't we playing to that? Why are you know those big nested menu systems that we had in the LMSs for all those? And no, that's why nobody went to them, that's why we had to force it down people's throats literally prize their jaws open to, to give them hours of compliance training. <laughs> and of course, another big shift, I think, is nothing to do with the technology, and that's to understand that learning is a process and not an event. And that's a line I use a lot because the LMS and, to be honest, traditional classroom training always saw learning as an event, and that was it. They walk out the door, bye-bye, sayonara. That's mm -hmm. no longer acceptable. Uh, because we know cognitively, we know in terms of people's actual needs in the workplace or in any context that uh, you need to reinforce learning. You know, there are all sorts of things about retrieval practice and getting things from short to long-term memory. We know tons about that, but we never did anything about it. Now we have the technology, and AI is particularly good at this because you can actually build the pedagogy into the software. You can't build pedagogy into flat HTML and bits of video. You just can't. But if you're looking at more sophisticated pedagogical approaches, the ones that actually work around effortful learning, retrieval practice, spaced practice. You know, we'll give an example earlier. If you want to ask someone a question and they give you a verbal or a written answer openly, and you want to interpret that answer, well, forget about most LMSs because none of them do it. And uh, you, you have to be able to interpret that and semantically and understand what they said.
or what they gave you back. Now, AI semantically interprets answers. That's beautiful. That's fantastic. AI will also generate questions automatically. You know, I spent a great deal of my life sitting down and writing questions. Like, who wants to do that? Why would you want to do that? Writing true-false questions for a living. Especially uh, since you know, we have the science, right, that you were mentioning earlier, right? There's, 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 there's been a lot of testing. I mean, we've had multiple choice questions for decades now, and there's yeah. been research done on how to write a good one, what are the most effective ways to do it, all that kind of stuff. So it seems ripe for automation. Well, it is. I wrote a blog piece saying there are 20, 20 ways to cheat on multiple choice questions. I became really good at this. This guy called Poundstone did all the research wrong. Even the high stakes tests, he took 600 of them from the US and found that they were all biased, massively biased. You could just use little statistical techniques to re-engineer, look for the opposite, look for the pairs. There's 101 tricks to the trade, especially if you've written lots of them. So I think it's time to move on from that rather primitive world to, to more sophisticated pedagogies. And we see that emerging on the web anyway, you know, uh, with systems that recognize that you're going to forget stuff. So they take that into account on your learning journey. I think the LXP systems certainly do that on their push and pull techniques. I think uh, trying to understand what's going on in the minds of learners requires AI. It requires a semantic understanding of what they're doing, what they're saying, what they've typed in. And all of this is being matched by this progressive increase in the efficacy of AI to do such things. So this is all natural language processing. And it's, it's re it really does work, some of this stuff, you know. So, and it's only going to get better. So there's no Gartner curve here. This is just going straight up, like Google, straight to the skies. So uh, 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 my fear, however, is that we're being overtaken by China. So in the education sphere, to touch upon that for a minute, they have just... You know, their open university has just gone out to hundreds of thousands of learners all over rural China with an AI-driven system, and nobody in Europe or the U.S. is doing that. So they're making higher education cheap, uh, fast, effective, more accessible, bringing millions out of poverty. And what are we doing? We're just making it more and more expensive year on year. And so, you know, we can criticize the Chinese morally all we like, but they're trying something that we are not even attempting to look at. We're keeping learning scarce, expensive, mm -hmm. elitist, Ivy League. That's what we're actually doing deliberately, deliberately. You know, there's no doubt about this in my mind. So I think if we have a chance of democratizing learning, making it cheaper, faster, better, then this is the route that we should be taking. So for me, it's a moral imperative. I think um, that, that's a piece of it that people don't often reflect on or, or that we don't hear enough about is the, the democratizing aspect of this. We do feel, you, you know, there's the data scrutiny, the, these privacy aspects that raise concerns, et cetera. But the other half of that moral equation is the potential, I guess, for it to actually, you know, make improvements and, and how do we get there? Yeah. I think that's right, Brent. Yeah, I mean, we're sitting on opposite sides of the planet doing this on software that's free. Uh, on top of that, we're, you know, we have Google and all these services we've been describing. They're free. They're free. And yet, you know, if I went to Dartmouth, uh, you know, a college I went to many, many years ago, how much is that a year per annum now? God knows how many tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, uh, and, you know, and, and, and it's got more expensive, you know. So I, I think there's something gone wrong here, but it's gone badly wrong in the educational field with regard to, uh, you know, this preservation of scarcity as as a virtue, but it's not a virtue, it's a vice. Mm. 
I can remember the early days of when the internet first started changing in the early 2000s, right? From that, from that world of just only some people could create content to that, what everybody started calling web 2.0 and learning 2.0 and all that kind of stuff. I remember when I first started listening to podcasts, when those came out and there was a Harvard professor that was one of the first people I saw posting some lectures as in that podcast format. And I remember thinking to myself, this is what the internet's all about. This is amazing. This is, this is why it's going to change everything because me, the kind of guy who could never get into an Ivy league school, never have the opportunity to get an Ivy league education can now get the same education for free from the same instructor that's giving out the same information to people paying hundreds of thousands of dollars, <laughs> you know, for that information. And it was like, this is why everything is going to be awesome. Now, isn't that amazing word podcast, isn't it? <laughs> I, there was an amazing paper published just recently by Carnegie Mellon showing that students like to switch their video off. And, uh, you know, and, and yet every teacher and lecturer demanded that every student keep their video along as if watching a student and seeing their background, you know, so, especially poor students who may be a bit nervous about showing their circumstances or what their bedroom looks like. Or How awful is that? But actually what they did show was that they got more learning by switching their video. off. They could focus on tasks. They weren't self-conscious and so mm -hmm. on. So sometimes less is a lot more. I like Occam's razor, you know, the minimum number of entities to reach a given goal. So when they, look at podcasts. They came from nowhere. No, no educator predicted that. Nobody in technology predicted it. No Gartner curve just went zoom straight up. And, and, you know, the majority of Americans listen regularly to podcasts. Why? Because cognitively, all that, all that noise isn't there. You can focus, reflect. It's intimate. You're part of the conversation. It works beautifully well for abstract knowledge, all the sort of things you did at college. So... This idea that we need lecturers with our big talking heads stuck on the screen was always a myth. It was always a myth in the lecture room. They were always about 50 yards away anyway. So you saw a little pinprick. So, you know, education has always been full of myths about this sort of stuff. And finally, the technology is finding them out a little. You know, what do people actually prefer? Well, actually, they quite like just you know, sitting in the quiet of their own room with headphones, just listening to a couple of people chat about something, a sort of Socratic method of learning, because it feels intimate. And and you can reflect more. It frees the, the cognitive load in your mind up to use mm -hmm. your imagination. So we're finding a lot of, a lot about how people like to learn and, uh, and many, many more channels. Unfortunately, we're stuck in just the few that we've always traditionally used. I mean, Plato lectured. He lectured two and a half thousand years ago. And you bet the bottom dollar, people can't wait to get back into the lecture room. I mean, I mean really, this is, uh, this is so sort of weird. Nice. Yeah, it, it, it is very strange. So we had we did have a lot of questions in the in the chat as as I mentioned yeah, about sure. how to get how to get started and uh, etc. And we did uh, you did uh, show us your book earlier in the session. So let's um, let's throw the book back up uh, for folks. And you mentioned as well a code. And let's not forget that before we uh, wrap up today's session. That's right. The code is A, A H R twenty A H R. 20 sorry my accent you know for americans yeah. i suppose the scottish accent you hear it on what the janitor and the simpsons and shrek highlander <laughs> that that's a weird trio of cultural references isn't <laughs> yeah. it? Say, that's oh. there can only there can only be one uh, <laughs> anyway 
But that code AHR20 on the Kogan page website, I'm sure you guys can put it up, gives you 20% off plus yeah. free delivery. So, it, you know, I'm not pushing the book. If you don't want to buy the book, that's okay. But uh, you don't make much money from books. But, uh, I, you know, if everything I've said about AI in a lot more detail with all the citations and research is in the book uh, and on my blog and so on. There were some interesting questions I, I was just noticing coming up about GDPR and so on. But again, I would refer you, I'd, I wrote a blog recently because the EU have published, it got leaked actually, a list of the sort of things that they're going to cap. You'll go back to your question, Chris, about how AI needs to be tamed, like all technology has to be tamed. We tamed car with seatbelts and airbags and safety features and AI will have those safety features as well and I, I would refer you to the the, the leaked document there because I think it's quite good as a starting document for the way in which we're going to control this in the same way that we control pharmaceuticals and foodstuffs but we just have to be normal about this and do as Stephen Pinker says you know it's just a matter of seeing these as design issues and legislating accordingly and that's starting to happen technology is always ahead of the sociology which is always ahead of the pedagogy. It's always the third one, but I think it will take time, but we'll, we'll get there. So G GDPR actually covers quite a lot as it stands in terms of this anyway. That was one question. Yeah, there were so, definitely a couple of questions about either citing GDPR itself or, or privacy type related uh, concerns too. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, that's probably a good place for us to, uh, to dance on out of here for the- More for the than week. likely. I, uh, I think we, if you don't mind, Donald, I'd love to have you back on and we can talk about a heck of a lot more stuff. I'm sure we no can problem. do that forever. That's yeah, cool. yeah, there's plenty to talk about in our business. Yeah, things are changing. That's great. Very cool. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, if you've got any where people can connect with you, um, I, I understand you're fond of LinkedIn, so that might be an appropriate place. Um, anyway. <laughs> um, hey. I've just put my email address up there. I have no problem with people emailing me with questions in these sessions. So, you know, feel free to do that directly and I'll get back to you. Very cool. And uh, yeah, I'll give you some other links to my blog. Awesome. Thanks, gang. Thanks. Um, awesome, awesome session today. Donald, thanks so much for joining us. Um, and no worries. Of, it's a pleasure. Lots of stuff going on in the chat as always. Some great questions um, in, the, in the question panel too that were, that were tossed in. So big thanks to our, our group who always join us and join us very are very uh, collaboratively that's the word i'm looking for let's dance on out of here oh uh, speaking of linkedin we do have a linkedin group brand i don't know if you have the the hand the uh, the url for that handy i don't have it handy no okay. I don't. Uh, but it's there just search for it in the groups or however you do that on linkedin and uh, hit us up there you can also just go to idiotic.com i d i o d c.com you can get all the information you need about this stuff Awesome. Gang, have a great rest of the week. We'll see you all next week. And in the meantime, keep dancing. Thanks so much, Donald. No problem. <laughs>